Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. It's hardly a revelation that our everyday world has been profoundly marked by advances in science and technology. But appreciating how exactly the legal world has been impacted by the many developments in neuroscience and genetics is considerably more subtle. But that's precisely what Duke University law professor Nita Farahani is consistently focused on, bringing her unique background of biology and philosophy to bear on better appreciating how exactly both the law and interpretations of the law have been impacted by our rapidly developing scientific understanding. I know you did an undergraduate degree in biology Mm -hmm. and and, um, I was guessing, speculating, that perhaps when you were younger you had scientific motivations, thought that you would be a scientist and biologist and so forth. Is that right? I never thought I'd be a scientist, but I did think I'd be a physician. Um, So I grew up with a physician as a father and grew up doing a lot of things in uh, the medical field. So I did internships at the hospital and worked for physicians in high school and um, thought that I would go to medical school. So this was pre-med basically that you were I was Mm pre-med. And so I went into college pre-med. And uh, at Dartmouth, they had a number of different opportunities that were available for women in science. And so I did a number of the women in science programs, including internships, again, at the hospital. And I found myself pretty quickly gravitating toward policy-based medical internships rather than patient care. Uh, And I didn't actually really enjoy patient care. Partly, I wasn't that comfortable around sick people. Um, and I was not comfortable around illness and the sight of blood. Um, I was I was trailing a uh, OBGYN, and wow. I remember he did a circumcision of a baby boy where he looks back to me because he's describing to me what's happening, and and that's all I remember before I you know passed out. <laughs> and so, career adaptation then. Yes, and so you know I it, 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 I started to figure out that you know what I'm really interested in these scientific concepts, and I love genetics and I love neuroscience, but. It, applying it as being a physician is probably not the right answer. So, so help me out here because I, I I was never pre med. So you had to do these you had to do these things when you were an undergraduate, first year, second year. You were following people. You following so the, so there was a great program at Dartmouth called the yeah. Women in Science Program that enabled people enabled women in science to do internships um, and fellowships with different people. And so it could be in a research lab, but I wasn't interested in being a research scientist because I thought that it was kind of slow moving and wasn't interesting. And I liked interacting with people more. I was more interested in the kind of bigger picture issues. 
And so the internships that I saw were ones that were more policy-based or hospital-based. So I worked with a couple of physicians in the hospital who were working on studies that were looking at patient populations and some epidemiological issues. Right. One of them was an OBGYN who also allowed me to go with him to visit patients. Allowed you. Well, it was you. great when it, you know, when it was pregnant women, you know, who were just coming in for a checkup or something. They weren't sick. It was right. Fine. That was like there were just a, people. There was people, yeah. um, but when there was sickness or there was um, blood involved, it was bad for me. I really didn't <laughs> enjoy it at all. <laughs> and you know, I went so far as actually going down the road of medical school interviews. I went to medical school interviews. Still, mm -hmm. after all this, you still went. Boy, I did. Stubborn. Was this I your was. parents or something? Like, well, why well part you... of it was that. So I have I have two older sisters, and one of them was already a lawyer. And even though I came. Um, from a background in debate. So I did high school debate and college debate. Um, and most of the people who did debate went into law. I felt like my sister had already claimed that territory. I was the third child. My father was a physician. Somebody had to follow in his footsteps. And so oh, there, were, there were no other doctors. You were the, no, you, I was I was the last hope, you I know, see, and so so I was trying to hold on to that last hope. But again, despite the fact that you couldn't stand the sight of blood. Yeah, despite the fact that I passed out as soon as there was blood and didn't like sick people. <laughs> but so I went to medical school interviews. And, you know, one of the things that I think medical school uh, students like to do with people who come on interviews, whether it's for hazing or because they think it's actually cool, is to take them and show them the cadavers that they're working on. And that was it. I mean, I was like, this is, I, ca I can't do this. I mean, it's sure. disgusting, the smell of formaldehyde, the, sure. I mean, it was just. Well, circumcisions on the one hand and cadavers on the other. Yeah, that's, just, that's enough. yeah that was enough. That yeah, was enough. Right. And so that was my senior year in college. And at that point, I was like, I really got to do something else. Like, this is not the right answer. But I didn't know what you could do. One of the problems for people who are interested in science, and particularly in science policy or bioethics, is it's not clear what the career path is. Mm -hmm. And when you come into college, if you're interested in science, it seems obvious that you go to medical school, but what the other options are to explore that are, are entirely unclear. So one of the things that was, again, kind of a path of least resistance was um, at a lot of major universities, there's corporate recruiting, there are uh, consulting companies and there are investment banks who come onto campus. Sure. And so I started to explore that to see, given that they were coming and they were interviewing, was there something in the business world that would make sense to me, particularly because my mother is in business. And so hmm. I also was attracted to and exposed to business. And um, as I looked into consulting companies, I realized a lot of consulting companies work with healthcare companies and work with biotech companies. And they were really interested in my science background because a lot of people with science backgrounds don't go into mm -hmm. those fields. And so it seemed like a good match as a way to explore a different aspect of medicine and healthcare and biotechnology and genetics. And so I went to a strategy consulting company after college in Boston, where I got to focus most of the strategy consulting that I was doing with major pharmaceutical companies and major biotech companies and emerging biotech companies and to spend a lot of time because at the time biotech was starting to kind of take off a bit. To so this, spend is, this is what, late 90s, early 2000s? Yes, exactly. So 98 to 2001. Um, you know, really it's sort of the cusp of the biotech industry starting to take off. and. Because I had a science background, they gave me a lot of leeway to do a lot of research studies to inform the industry as to what was happening and to consult with different actors that they were bringing onto board. And so I developed a pretty you know, short-term, medium-term, and long-term view about what was going to happen in biotech, from ag biotech for agricultural biotech to um, you know, medicine biotech, and found that to be a really fascinating way to explore issues. Ultimately. It didn't, it didn't have the kind of depth that I was interested in, and so I still wanted to explore another graduate degree. And you, so that's what I wanted to ask you. When you were doing this, did you find that you were 
limited, uh, limited by your technical lack of, of understanding of any of these things? Yes it's difficult no, to make yeah. these studies, research studies, predicting what's going to happen and where it's going to go if you don't actually have the right technical background. For yeah, it. so they, they had a lot of training for the, the kind of technical expertise, not in the sciences, but in how you would do forecasting and things sure. like that. And so I was getting that kind of expertise. And I had more genetics and scientific training than most of the people who were in the companies that we were consulting with, as well as sure. you know the company I was in. But I knew that I wanted more. And so after, by, by my second year, I, I decided, since I was in Boston, Harvard has continuing education programs. Um, that you can get degrees through. And so I decided that would be a good way for me to continue working, but also get an advanced degree in biology and figure out, did I want to go into medicine in some other area? Did I want to become a research scientist? Did I want to do something else? And so I started a master's in biology and in neuroscience at Harvard that I worked on up until I figured out what it was that I was going to go do, and so I ultimately what, what, completed what were you doing that. But that? What, what was the research? So it wasn't research-based; it was class-based. So I was taking a number of classes, and so I took um, a number of advanced microbiology classes, classes in um, advanced genetics, um, neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, some of the kind of more interesting behavioral genetics classes. Um, so things that were building on my original cellular and developmental biology knowledge that I had gained as an undergraduate um, as a major in genetics and cellular and developmental biology, and then taking advanced classes in microbiology and in systems biology and in neuroscience. And you were doing this simultaneous to, to, to working, yes. right? So mm -hmm. that must have been difficult, demanding in terms of time and so forth. Um, it was demanding in terms of time, especially since consulting companies uh, have, you know, when they have young 20-year-olds, they, they like to... They want to push them till they break, right? That's right. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, I didn't sleep a lot in those years, but I learned a lot, which was fun. And it was a great pairing because it turned out I loved the academic engagement and the intellectual engagement. And having that intellectual engagement while having the business exposure and being able to apply it immediately was a great pairing for me at the time. And it was through that course of study, I was taking a class on behavioral genetics where there were, you know, still early days of behavioral genetics even too, understanding the, the you know, um, relationship between specific behavioral traits and genetics and environmental co contributions to that. There was like three pages of a textbook that talked about the use of, um, of behavioral genetic studies to try to understand criminal behavior mm -hmm. and some studies that have been done in prison populations of things like XYY syndrome and how XYY syndrome, they were seeing an increase. I, I don't know what that is. What, what, so XYY is just you have an extra Y chromosome. Right. You know, the single most predictive um, genetic contribution to criminal behavior is the Y chromosome, right? Mm -hmm. It isn't some specific difference on any of the chromosomes or specific genetic difference. It's just having a Y chromosome. So the theory was maybe if you had two Y chromosomes, that was even worse. You know, not only are you male, but you're like double testosterone. And they thought maybe it was higher testosterone levels that were contributed by the Y chromosome mm -hmm. that increased the likelihood that a person was going to be a criminal. So it was like three pages of the textbook, not very much depth. And those studies, for the most part, have been discredited at this point. But it was enough to trigger in me an interest, an interest especially since I already came predisposed to an interest in law. I was minoring in government at Dartmouth. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So you had, you had previously entertained as you were going around being exposed to cadavers and, and all the rest of this sort of thing. This was in the back of your mind at yeah. some level. Yeah, and I had this natural inclination toward law from the beginning with debate and 
with being successful in it. I was recruited to college for debate, and right. so. So um, it's just just the fact that your your sister had already claimed the. That's right. She, you know, she'd already claimed it, and it was like, well, my big sister's already done it. So I don't want to do it. I want to have my own thing that I carve out in life. Then I realized there's probably enough room in law for both of us, yeah. <laughs> and so. She's okay with it now, by the way. She's fine with it, and yeah. in fact, you know, we really do have different domains. They intersect in many ways, but she's a practicing attorney. I'm a legal academic. They're, we have very different careers, and yet. We do end up interacting on a number of different issues where, you know, her expertise is helpful to the work I'm doing and vice versa. Um, but so I decided I would explore a, a law degree, but because I, you know, I still had the science interest and mm -hmm. this interest in trying to figure out a career that would combine science and science policy and law, I was looking for dual degree programs. So I was looking for JD PhD programs or JD MA programs, schools that had a master's in bioethics mm -hmm. that I could do with a law degree. And Duke, um, is very strong and in interdisciplinary work and has a very strong group of students about a quarter of the law school class actually does a dual degree they do some other degree at the same time yeah. were you the only one that was doing a JD PhD and, and, and philosophy I was mm -hmm. but I actually came in as a JD MA so I was doing a JD and a master's in philosophy of biology mm -hmm. and it was at the end of my first year where um, I was meeting with my master's thesis advisor and I had to come up with what my thesis was going to be about for my master's. And I said, you know, the thing that brought me to law school is this interest about the use of behavioral genetics in the criminal system. I'd like to do a dissertation. I want to do a master's thesis on that. And he said, great, you should totally do that. That's a new area. It's an area that people haven't really explored. In philosophy of biology, there's not a lot that's been done yet in behavioral genetics. But what you're proposing is not a master's thesis. It's a doctoral dissertation. Um, and you should get one. You should get a PhD. You should just, you know, apply to the PhD program. Uh, and do this as a JD PhD instead of a JDMA. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll apply and see right. what happens. And so I applied and got into the program and um, ended up doing a master's thesis on a smaller portion and then going on to complete the PhD after I'd finished the law degree so that I graduated from Duke with the JDMA and then two years later completed the dissertation for the PhD, looking at this issue that had actually motivated me and brought me to law school, which is what relevance does behavioral genetics and neuroscience have for issues of responsibility and punishment in the criminal justice system? Cool. I okay. want to get back to, uh, I have some other questions, but I, I want to get back to this extra Y chromosome. Mm -hmm. So those are the early studies that, yeah. that, uh, that triggered your interest. Um, just a few pages, mm -hmm. not, uh, I can't remember your words exactly, but the sense is they don't stand up terribly well in the, uh, yeah. looking at it from today's perspective. So what's the answer now, as far as our understanding? For XYY? Yeah. Or for, so XYY you know, is a syndrome, and it's a syndrome that we are familiar with and that does occur. It doesn't appear to predispose you to violence or predispose you to criminality. One of the reasons why a lot of the early studies on behavioral genetics and criminality have been discredited is criminality is a huge behavior. You right? have to and define it, it somehow. Exactly. Way. And so something that's been problematic for the study of behavioral genetics, that is the association between genetic and environmental contributions to behavioral traits, is defining the behavioral trait in a way that's consistent across different studies and a way that's meaningful too. Right. Sure. So is criminal behavior, um, if somebody writes a false check or a forged check or you know, a check for which they have insufficient funds, is that person the same as the person who is a serial killer? Probably not. Those are very different behaviors. And saying criminality would include everything from a petty crime to a really serious crime. Right. And so 
later behavioral genetic studies have really tried to isolate the behaviors we're much more interested in. Like maybe it's impulsivity or risk-seeking behavior, which can manifest in criminal conduct or in non-criminal conduct. Right. And so it turned out that in this small population that they'd studied in prisons, there was an increased incidence of XYY, but that doesn't mean that XYY causes no, people no, it's to a be criminal. Confusing causation and correlation. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, so what is our understanding now? If you have this extra Y chromosome, are mm -hmm. you uh, speculation is that you're predisposed towards something? And if so, there, what, I mean, what is sure, it? Sure, sure, but it's not criminality. Um, okay. So, I mean, it does appear to be related somewhat with increased testosterone levels, and increased testosterone levels do have some effects, including maybe having more hair on your body to right. um, certain right, lifting more, lifting more yeah. right? And <laughs> in some people, certain forms of aggression, but aggression could be you're a really good lacrosse player, or aggression could be your homicidal killer. So, you right. know, these or are both. spectrums. In fact, or if you've both. ever seen yes. lacrosse. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's true. You could be both. You could be, you could use your lacrosse stick in a way that was really destructive. Right. Um, but, you know, a lot of behaviors are on a spectrum. And so we have to be much more precise about what the behavior is in order to figure out what the genetic and environmental contributions are and in order to be able to re reproduce and replicate that study across different labs who may define the behavior a little bit differently from place to place. Right. So a, a central thrust of uh, why I wanted to talk to you is to explore this idea of whether or not we really are at a moment of sea change in terms of understanding, re-understanding fundamental issues with respect to the interchange of law society, philosophy, culpability, what have you, or whether uh, recent advances in neuroscience, recent advances in, in genetics, uh, biotechnology, and so forth, uh, really change things um, in a relatively straightforward way in terms of what we had before, to the extent that they are the most recent technologies. Yeah. So basically a difference in kind or a difference in degree. Yeah. Um, and. I thought we could maybe start by, first of all, if you have anything to say, just jump in. But I thought we could start by a, a recent study that I know you've been involved with, which is just identifying the number of times in legal proceedings uh, neuroscience and neuroscientific technologies has actually been invoked either by the prosecution or the defense. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like, at least as a data point of recognizing how things have changed, um, it's really been a, a sea change. Yeah. So there's a lot there to dive into. Um, you know, the question about whether or not having a better understanding of the neural and genetic and environmental contributions to behavior is gonna fundamentally disrupt the way that we do things in the criminal justice system is a question that many people are grappling with right now. Um, my own perspective is it depends on the question you're asking. So in some areas of criminal law, it is disruptive and it's a difference in kind, not a difference in degree. In other areas, it's just a difference of degree. We've had psychological defenses for as long as we've had criminal law. Mm -hmm. um, we've had mental illnesses that we've had to grapple with. And even if we haven't been able to understand why a person acts differently than other people, we're able to recognize that some people are very atypical in terms of their capabilities and their behaviors. And criminal law has had to grapple with that for a very long time. So what we can do now that we couldn't do before is we can start to understand some of the contributions to those atypicalities in behavior. And 
understanding the reasons why might change why we do things sometimes. It may not change why we do things at other times, depending on why we did them to begin with. Sure. I wasn't um, looking for an all-encompassing statement because I want to get into some of these issues. Yeah, we'll get into be, some of them. Um, but uh, but well, yeah. So, so uh, let me start by sure. just that as my kind of global overview. Now, what's been happening in recent years? I've been looking at the use of neuroscience in the criminal courtroom in particular, although it's also being used in civil cases, from about 2002 until now. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been systematically studying it as an empirical study from 2005 until now, and looking at the numbers of times that judicial opinions talk about criminal defendants or prosecutors using neuroscience to address the defendant's behavior, to figure out why the defendant behaved the way, the way they did. Usually, the way that that's going to happen is the defendant introduces it because the prosecution can't put the defendant's neurological and genetic contributions to their behavior at stake or at issue. They can't compel an examination of the defendant unless the defendant first puts those things at issue. Mm -hmm. So the defendant puts those things at issue, introducing some sort of expert testimony, introducing neurological testing that's been done, neuropsychological testing that's been done, that they were in a car accident and had a head injury or something like that. That's what I was going to ask, what the motivations would be for, for a defendant to actually introduce this. So primarily they're trying to say, I'm not as responsible as the person who had a fully um, autonomous, uh, a fully um, free way to make a choice, right? So a person who doesn't have any sort of neuroatypicality or any sort of brain abnormality, um, they have full use of their conscious awareness and of their faculties and of their decision making. So they're arguing they were compelled to do something at some compelled level. Compelled in a way. I mean, so it, it's, you know, the, the, the pithy answer is it's, it's trying to say my brain made me do it instead of I made me do it, as if there's a difference between the two, right? I mean, you are your brain, and when you, in the sense of your conscious awareness, make a choice, that's a part of your brain or parts of your brain that are engaged versus if other parts of you know your conscious awareness are influenced by a tumor or by a frontal lobe disorder or something else. It's just a different way in which your conscious awareness is making a choice. So, so give me an example. You were about to, and I cut you off about the car being in a car and so forth. Give me an example of what somebody might say. So the simplest and you know crudest case is I was in a car accident, um, and when I was in a car accident, I banged my head, and I banged my head in a way that caused damage to the frontal lobe region of my brain, which is important because we know that frontal lobe regions of the brain are involved in executive decision-making and in planning and premeditation. And here are the images of my brain that show the damage to the frontal lobe region of my brain. And look at my behavior before I was in the car accident. Before I was in the car accident, I was a law-abiding citizen. I never acted impulsively or with rage. You know, I was your um, upstanding citizen of the state. And then I was in this car accident, and look at what's happened since then. I've, you know, in, I've ended up in a bunch of bar brawls and a lot of fights, and I act impulsively, and I lost my job, and I'm having all these difficulties in life. And here are the experts that are, are here to show you that this brain abnormality that I developed as a result of this car accident through no fault of my own is significantly impairing my ability to make premeditated choices. So yes, the thing that you have charged me of here, which is you know, killing a person after a bar brawl um, is something I did, but it's something I did and had much less control over doing than another person did. And that can take the, the shape of a few different kinds of defenses. One of them would be the worst kind of homicide we could charge you with is premeditated homicide. It's planned homicide because we think people who plan crimes are sure. more dangerous and or this worse. this is evidence of the lack of premeditation, presumably. Well, so they're trying to say, or I acted impulsively. Right. And so because I acted impulsively, it is 
less serious of a crime. It might be more like provocation or manslaughter than it would be so a it's murder. It's not premeditated. It's not premeditated, so it's still a form of homicide, but it's a lesser form of homicide. Right. Um, another way that they might argue the same thing is it's not about the mental state. It's about my voluntariness because a prosecution has to prove that a person acted voluntarily with the right mental state to convict them of a crime. And they're going to say, this wasn't voluntary. I'm like an automaton. Um, so if you think about what an automaton means, an automaton is a, a like the conscious awareness isn't acting. It's like a reflex or a convulsion. And because of this brain damage that I've suffered, there are many actions that I engage in that might look voluntary, but they're like reflexes and convulsions, so they're involuntary. So you shouldn't hold me responsible. So, so, so presumably along that line of reasoning, they would they would argue that they should be acquitted, not just have a, a lesser sentence. That's right. So in this context, right, there's there's kind of three different areas that you could introduce it. You could introduce it pre-trial, during trial to say, mm. don't convict me, or during sentencing to say, sentencing me for a lesser amount. So these two examples I just gave you are both about examples of, of not convicting the person or convicting them of something less altogether. They could introduce it pre-trial to say, I can't assist in my own defense because I need competency to do so, and the brain damage that I've suffered has rendered me unable to assist in my own defense. I don't have the necessary mental faculties to do so. Or they could introduce it during sentencing to say, yeah, I did that thing, and you convicted me of that thing, but what the way you should sentence a person is based on not just what they did, but who they are. And a person who acts without any sort of impairments is worse than a person who acts with impairments. And I'm a person with impairments, and so you should sentence me less harshly because right. I'm less morally culpable than the person without. The, the pretrial business about the lack of competency, yeah. what, what is the end goal there to, to, to just have the entire thing dismissed because they're not competent? I mean, what, what are they trying to... Well, so it's, if, you, if you're rendered incompetent to stand trial, you don't get the charges dismissed against you. You end up with you could end up in a mental institution until you're rendered competent to stand trial. But a lot of times if a person's incompetent to stand trial, what it does is drive toward plea bargaining. So 90% of cases in the criminal justice system in the United States never make it to trial. They're actually resolved through a negotiated lesser plea mm -hmm. um, between the prosecution and the defense attorney. So this increases the likelihood of that? It increases it significantly because the likelihood that you're going to be able to have an efficient trial and bring the case to trial and resolve the issue before a jury is much less likely for a person who's incompetent to stand trial. So, you know, for the worst, the worst kind of offender, somebody who's a serial killer who's proven incompetent to stand trial, you might forcibly make them competent to stand trial by giving them medication if you could. Um, and that's a controversial thing that happens in a number of states. But for lesser crimes, it just may not be worth it for the prosecution to bring that case to trial. And it might be that the best thing for the person who has committed the crime is some sort of mental treatment in a mental health facility. And so they might negotiate, as long as this person stays involuntarily committed for five years, right, then we won't bring the case against them. Or, you know, we'll assume that that's the time served for whatever this lesser thing is that they plead guilty to, and they're involuntarily committed for five years, and they get treated, and then they get out. And so competency can drive a better result in some ways than ending up in prison through you know, a difficult trial process for a defendant, and that might be the motivation for right. raising it in competency. And, and so you've, you've done studies and, and, and looked at not just um, 
the frequency writ large, but in terms of these various categories that you've delineated. Mm -hmm. And presumably, there have been various trends that have been established and yeah. so forth. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so looking at it from 2005 to 2012, um, the number of cases in which judicial opinions talk about the use of neuroscience used by a defense attorney or a prosecution have increased. And it's about 100 cases per year for the first few years. Mm -hmm. In recent years, it's over 300 cases per year. Now, that doesn't sound like huge numbers. I mean, in total, we're looking at about 1,600 cases. But if you think 90% of cases never make it to trial, um, so we're looking at 10% of cases that could ever make it to trial. Of the 10% that make it to trial, about 1% end up on appeal. And it's that 1% of cases that end up with judicial opinions that are going to be talking about these types of trends. So 99% of the cases I don't have access to through right. a study. Right. In 1% of cases to see that kind of trend increasing significant. is significant. Um, and, it, and it's about 5% of all of the murder cases, um, which really? is... 5%, that's, mm -hmm. that's huge. Which is huge. And so yeah. you know, for, for murder cases, to have 5% of them with some sort of neuroscience being introduced uh, to whether it's pretrial, trial, or sentencing is pretty substantial. And, and the, the, of course, there are two sides to this, but before I get there, um, I'm a little bit confused about your access. So when you're talking about all this plea bargaining, you don't have access to any of that stuff mm -hmm. at all. And no. why, why is that? So plea bargaining is an entirely discretionary process, meaning it's Sure, I get that. But, but after the fact, they, they don't have records of, of this sort of stuff that they tell you? No, they don't. Because so, I can imagine it being very discretionary, and then they come to whatever arrangement, and that, that arrangement's public, isn't it? I mean, at some point, the no? plea deal is not made public. That the person pled guilty is made public. Really? So you yeah. don't have any... There's an, there, it, it is a black box. So it's amazing because 90% of the criminal justice system, there's virtually no trace and no records that we can, that we can access. Now, here at Duke, um, a couple of colleagues and, uh, of mine and I have been interviewing prosecutors and defense attorneys to try to, at least through qualitative interviewing, get a better sense. A little bit. Yeah, exactly, and get a better sense of what's happening right. in the plea bargaining process. And it seems like, for the most part, um, that this kind of neurological evidence isn't being introduced in the plea bargaining process. And that's because the kind of testing and neuropsychological testing that might be involved, you don't really get the funds for it for defense counsel until you actually get to the point where you're going to trial. Yeah. A lot of this happens before arraignment, before you actually get to trial. And so um, given that a lot of this isn't happening, although prosecutors say it would be much more impactful if this evidence was introduced as part of the plea bargaining process, because then we would know all the kind of mental health issues that we're right. dealing with to come up with the plea. Right. And so... <laughs> you think. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's, it's this tension between if you have a poor defendant who is basing their entire defense on court-appointed attorneys and court-appointed funds, yeah. and defense attorneys don't get those funds and don't invest the kind of time unless it's going to trial, a lot of opportunities for introducing this evidence to have an influence in decision making about how defendants are, are treated in the criminal justice system aren't being taken, taken advantage of. If you have something really obvious like a person suffered a major car accident and they have a major difference in behavior, that kind of thing you can tell the prosecutor about. Yeah. But the kind of testing or brain imaging or neuropsychological testing that would occur that you would introduce through expert testimony at trial that kind of a workup isn't happening until later in the process. I, I, I'm just, so, so I, I want to get back to the, the trials we do know about and, and, and all that, or the trials uh, for that matter. Um, but just a small diversion, because I'm, I'm thinking 
if I don't particularly care for the moment about neuroscience or any of that, and I just want to get a sense of, is the plea bargaining process working? Yeah. And I don't have access to the information, the raw data, through which I can actually make any sort of assessment. Right. That makes it hard for me to make any sort of assessment, doesn't it? I mean... If you're just interested in plea bargaining and understanding how it works, yeah, it's a big black box. And if we want to know if this huge part of our criminal justice system is working, this right. huge discretionary part is working, right. there are people who study it, but... How do, how do they study it? Largely through qualitative interviews, um, because... That's terrible. That's a terrible thing. They can't get... I mean, our qualitative interview is completely different. There, I mean, there's some, <laughs> there's some record-keeping kept by prosecutors. You know, I mean, there's record-keeping, like, this is how many plea deals we've done um, that you can get access but to. But just quantitative. But just quantitative, and a lot of it's decentralized. There is no... You know, if I want to read legal opinions that are particularly appellate opinions, I can go to a database like Westlaw or Lexis and read those judicial opinions. Or if I want to read what's on a docket in a, um, in a state, in a court, I can go to something called the PACER system uh, and get access to that information. But this, which deals with 90% of the criminal justice system, of what's happening in plea bargaining, None of that is stuff that is readily and easily publicly available information that I could get access to and study. So it's hard because it is this huge part of the criminal justice system that we don't have a lot of insight into. Now it's an essential part because you know, there's no way we could bring or should bring every case to trial. No, no I'm not, of course, I'm not advocating that, that we, we throw the whole process out. I'm just saying it's very hard to get a sense of whether something is working yeah. well or as effectively as possible if you if don't, you don't even know that it's yeah no i agree i mean it's it's a it's a oddity that there's so much discretion over such a huge issue um, now it turns out about 40% of murder cases go to trial rather than being resolved through plea bargaining and the reason that that category of cases is more likely to go to trial is you don't have as much to lose Right, if you're a defendant, if you don't have a great deal on the table. Sure, you might as well go to trial. Yeah, and so for some of the most serious crimes, they end up actually going to trial just because it's better, I mean, they're better off rolling the dice and finding out what happens. Okay, so let, let, let's get back to uh, where I cut you off, which is uh, these trials where neuroscience is being um, introduced in various different ways. Mm -hmm. You gave some examples of it. Um, one of the findings that I read about which struck me as um, as unusual and counterintuitive, I'm not sure I had too many intuitions, but certainly counterintuitive to whatever intuitions I might have had, was that uh, one result was that um, uh, um, the, the introduction of neuroscientific testimony or the lack thereof was correlated with uh, dismissing counsel for being ineffective. Right, um, yeah. And that was something that was a bit surprising to me. Yeah. So maybe you can uh, give me a sense as to what's going on and why that's going on as well. Sure. So um, in death penalty cases where the prosecution is seeking capital punishment as uh, the sentence and they succeed in getting the death penalty for a conviction, um, there's a very long appeals process that's available to criminal defendants. And that's because we're the most concerned about getting it right in this category since the result sure. is you know, so permanent and right. problematic. So um, the, one of the kinds of claims that is available to a criminal defendant who is, it's always available to a criminal defendant, but one that they raise most often in these types of proceedings, these capital appeal proceedings, so they've been convicted, they've been given the death penalty, and now they're appealing, is to argue that they received ineffective assistance of trial counsel 
um, at trial and that because of that they should get a new trial where they get to introduce new evidence. And it's very difficult to succeed on an ineffective assistance of counsel claim because um, the bar is really quite high for what counts as ineffective assistance of counsel. You need to show not only that the performance of your counsel was deficient and fell below what we would expect of trial counsel, but that that prejudiced the impact, the, the outcome of your case, that um, you there's would direct, have... There is a direct correlation. There, that's right. right. And so it's a two-step right. process. One, right. it's deficient, and two, it, there, caused it. it actually caused a bad outcome for you in the case. And so even if you can prove the first, it's almost impossible to prove the second, because as long as there's sufficient evidence in the record to that a reasonable jury could have found you guilty and also given you the death penalty, then your conviction and your sentence will be sustained. So there's a, a tiny, narrow category of cases in which people have been found to be ineffective assistance of counsel. And, you know, just to give you some examples, if a person, if trial counsel is asleep during trial, like literally has his head down on the table and is asleep, there have been cases where on appeal the court has said that wasn't an effective assistance of counsel because they were awake for the important parts of the trial. <laughs> Um, and so, I mean, this gives you a sense of like... That's how high the bar is. That's how high the bar is, you know? Like, as long as they're awake for the important parts, even if they slept through half the trial, it's still not going to be an effective assistance to counsel. Uh -huh. And so what's very unusual is, in a number of cases now, failing to investigate the possibility of some sort of brain abnormality, particularly when any reasonable person interacting with the defendant would have recognized that there was something probably neuroatypical about the person. Um, has been found to be ineffective assistance to counsel, which means that it's been found to be deficient to fail to investigate and prejudicial in that they think, the judge thinks, that the outcome of the case would have been different, either that they wouldn't have gotten the death penalty or they wouldn't have been convicted of the same crime if that investigation had occurred. That's different than you investigate and you choose not to introduce it because we can get into the fact that it may be very reasonable and sensible to not introduce a brain abnormality into a criminal trial as well because it could be prejudicial to the defendant. Right. Um, but failing to investigate it when there's some reason to think that the person has some neuroatypicality has been found to be an effective assistance counsel, which means that's changing the numbers that I'm seeing and the number of cases that are being introduced because if the, the impact on an attorney for being found to be an effective assistance of counsel could be disbarment, they can lose their license to practice law because it's a pretty serious thing to say. Well, obviously the bar is so high. Yes, the bar is so high that if you fall below that bar, that means you know, you're really somebody who we need to question whether or not you should even be an attorney if you have that deficient of a performance. But you sleep through both, both parts of the trial. Yes, you the slept through the important, the important parts too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, so there have been now quite a few cases where people have been found to be ineffective and to safeguard against that many of them are investigating they're not always introducing it at trial but as long as you can show i investigated the possibility i even discovered some brain abnormality but i chose not to introduce it as a reasonable trial strategy so why do you think that is why do you think that that this neuroscientific evidence has has proved to be so successful at, at uh at leading to this conclusion of uh, ineffective representation? Yeah, I mean, so that's, it's a great question to say, is neuroscience somehow different or special that 
Um, it, it should lead us to think that failing to investigate it is an effective assistance of counsel, which means it's so important and so critical to our adjudication of a case that we must actually investigate it. Sure. So it's, it's more important than staying awake, in fact. It's much more important than staying awake, apparently, um, but or at least for the, for the boring parts of the trial. But so, you know, it seems like, first of all, it appears to be persuasive to jurors, right? And so if we want to know if it's prejudicial for failing to introduce it, the fact that it's prejudicial tells us that. Now, why is it so influential for jurors? That's, I think, the more challenging question because, you know, in the fact-checking side of things, some socioeconomic issues or nutrition in being brought up or being abused as a child could actually impact your behavior far more than a brain abnormality. And we have far better empirical and long-term studies that show the effects right. of those types of differences on behavioral outcomes than we do on neuroscientific differences between individuals and behavioral outcomes. Exactly. But it seems to be more tangible to people, right? So if, if I can say to you, I mean, we're in an era where people are more than just fascinated with brains, they're obsessed with their brains. I mean, there's this kind of neurocentric view of the world where it all comes down to the brain. You know, if you title a talk like, come learn about love, you'll get a number of people there because people are interested in love. If you say, come learn about the brain in love, you know, you'll have a sold out crowd because everybody wants to understand the neural mechanisms of, of love. So I think partly it's an obsession with the brain right now, um, but also it's because it's been this black box, you know, it's, it's locked in your head. We don't know what's happening in there. And now we're starting to understand what's happening in there, which gives us a better sense of people. And it allows us to individualize it in a way that socioeconomic background and beating as a child doesn't, right? Sure, Lots of people. Or something like that. Yes, yeah, so you can look at a scan and you can say, oh, the, you know, this person has that brain abnormality, as opposed to, you know, this entire population was subject to poor socioeconomic factors which could have predisposed them to commit crime. And so it's a way of kind of localizing and individualizing a claim right. in a way that's much harder with environmental and other types of effects, right. even if it turns out that 95% of people with that brain abnormality don't kill, right? We don't have that kind of a that kind of evidence yet. Sure. And it's um, also a logical consequence. This is what I was saying before. I mean, the nature-nurture debate has been around since antiquity. People have been talking about that. And 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 what makes people do what they do? Well, we all know that personalities have something to do with this thing up here. So it shouldn't really be a surprise that right. something's going on up there. We're right. just starting to understand a little bit more about it. And that, that's... So that's part of it, but also it's um, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. And yet, you know, one thing that has motivated us for a very long time is a very dualistic understanding of behavior. And by dualistic understanding, I mean people have long since... Uh, the beginning of time, thought that there's a difference between the body and the soul or mm. the mind. And um, to realize that the mind is in the brain and the brain can explain differences in how you think and how you behave starts to make it a much more physical reality. And when people see, oh, look, the way in which a person behaves and that mind and soul and everything else that I've talked about mm. can be explained in part by this you know, abnormality in this region of the brain or in this brain tumor, in this frontal lobe accident or in this car accident, it starts to tie it to a, a physical problem. And mm. when you tie something to a physical problem as opposed to the bad character of the person, it's easier to externalize blame, right? Before we had, you've got wicked character or you don't. And now we say, well, it's not actually that simple. We start to understand that badness and wickedness and things like that 
may be influenced quite a bit by things that are well outside of your control. And if that's true, does it make sense to blame you in the same way as the person who doesn't have that influencing their behavior? So I think seeing it and being confronted with the physicality of personality is driving differences in what people do. So I definitely want to get to responsibility and accountability and 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 uh, autonomy and and all of that from a neuroscientific view and, and, and a broader view. But as you were talking about dualism, an obvious thought came to me, which is here we are um, in a country which has a, a rather strong religious beliefs mm -hmm. still. Uh, many people have very strong religious beliefs. Um, many people I would submit do believe in a soul. They, mm -hmm. they are dualists. Mm -hmm. um, is it is it statistically difficult to get uh, a resonance, as it were, with these objective neuroscientific, um, let's just say enlightenment-oriented um, results and processes uh, with a country where you have a jury system where an awful lot of the people who will be sitting in the jury uh, might be logically impervious to a lot of these claims because they are dualists? Even dualists seem to be moved by brain abnormalities. So even dualists seem to think, you know, I, I think the way it works is to say, well, there's the soul, and then there's something interfering with the soul's ability to act through the body. And that interference um, helps us understand that it isn't the soul acting, it's this brain abnormality acting. I see. So the soul is is fine. You have a perfectly healthy soul, but uh, the the conduit between the soul and the body is the brain, as it were, and and that's where the problem is. Is that is that that seems to be how they you know how somebody who's a dualist would interpret it, and and more than that, it 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 sort of purifies the soul in some ways, right? So before the only explanation what you had was there's a good soul and there's a bad soul, but now it's no 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 there's something else like. It's still a good soul. It's not a wicked person. It's actually this brain abnormality that helps to explain it. So in a way, it exonerates the soul for that kind of a person hmm. um, in a way that they didn't have an excuse to hold them less accountable before. Okay. Uh, and that, that's, mm. a, that's fairly common, that, that, that view is... Mm -hmm. uh, is that actively enunciated, or is that just what people are, are deriving and, and concluding on their own? I mean, is it, are there churches out there that are saying no. things to this effect, or that just seems Not to be... Not that I'm aware the, the, of, uh, but, but I don't go around to, to listen to what the sermons are saying. Well, but well, you could hear on the... I mean, I don't mm, know. It, it's not a refrain that I hear. Uh, you know, so the Pope, I think, just came out recently saying that, um, that it would be okay to embrace evolutionary biology. Um, and there you go. That That's was, progress. That was different, right? <laughs> it's very different than um, what the church uh, has said before. Mm. Uh, I haven't heard that kind of pronouncement from the Pope about brain science and wickedness and souls or things like that, although maybe with this Pope it's possible that you'll hear something like that. No, it, it, instead it's, there's a lot of studies where people have um, tried to, to unpack and understand what is it that's motivating and compelling people to feel like you could nevertheless hold a person responsible or hold them less responsible based on a brain abnormality. And one of the echoes that I see through a lot of those studies is this ability to 
um, somehow disaggregate conscious awareness or soul or the kind of metaphysical person from physical constraints on their acting. And so my interpretation of what's happening is people are are figuring out a compatible view for them to hold between a dualistic perspective about personhood um, and physical limitations on your ability to act and effectuate that personhood. Right. Okay. Um, it, it's fine. It's, it's just it's surprising to me. I don't quite understand the chain of reasoning, but, um, but you're yeah. there in the pits, as it were, so I'll, I'll yeah. take your word for it. Um, I want to talk about um, so I'm not going to ignore this business of responsibility and free will. I, I, I look at it from, from perhaps a broader context in terms of um, whether we can consider ourselves, um, in fact, free and what the law has to say about that. And I know you've written about that, so I want to get there. But before I do, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Fifth Amendment mm -hmm. and your work there and what neuroscience and neuroscientific approaches might have to say about that and why. Okay, so one of the things that I find really interesting about developing neuroscience is trying to figure out whether or not our existing laws and existing legal protections can withstand new knowledge from something like neuroscience. And an area that that's been interesting to me to explore is whether or not the privilege against self-incrimination, which is part of the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, um, whether or not if I had a thought that you could somehow get at, um, or a memory that you could somehow get at, whether or not you could use that thought or that memory against me, or if that would violate my privilege against self-incrimination. So just, just before you, you, you begin, uh, <clears throat> I started reading something about this because of your work, and I asked myself, where does this come from anyway? The, the, the this, privilege? This, this privilege against self-incrimination. And yeah. I started uh, doing a little bit of a cursory investigation. And it seems like it comes, at least so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is it comes from religious persecution in England in the 17th century where people were forced to take oaths before they actually uh, were submitted uh, before these star chambers and high commissions and all the rest of that mm -hmm. sort of stuff, this uncommon law as it were. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and it was recognized that it would be inappropriate for them to have to basically agree to divulge uh, um, intentions and beliefs on religious lines. These are Puritans mostly. Um, and so there was a very, very specific um, justification for that, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. And so then you start asking, well, why, why do you actually need to have this self-incrimination law there to begin with? And do other places have that? I mean, what is it like in uh, I don't know what is it like in Germany, and what is it what is it like in Australia? Do they have similar sorts of uh, of laws? This is I want to get obviously back to this because you're you have a very specific focus, as I understand it, which is um, words to the effect of well, if if anything I say may be used against me, and they can actually figure out what I'm thinking at some level. That's a pretty slippery slope there. But my first question is, um, what is the what is the basis for for this approach anyway, and is it universal? So. Um so what you just asked is exactly where my research takes me, right? So what I was about to tell you about is the kind of method out. No, 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 it's, it's perfect because it's how my mind works too, which is I have a question like that, which is if you could get it in my mind, could you use it against me? And what that leads me to do is to use neuroscience as a lens to try to 
examine our norms and why we have our norms, right? So my philosophy background and training says, okay, well, that's the law as it is, but why is it that way? And so one of the things I did first was to say, okay, well, the only way I can answer that question, I can give you the doctrinal answer, which is, you know, what is the law likely to do? Um, but to understand what the law is likely to do, it's useful to understand what the purpose of the law is. So why do we actually have the privilege against self-incrimination? And what's the rationale for it? And in light of the rationale, does whatever the doctrinal response or the legal response that we would have make sense in light of the underlying rationale? And so I started by looking at the history of self-incrimination. In this country, where did it come from? It came from star chambers, from persecutions, from religious persecutions, from being compelled to speak and putting a person into what we call a cruel trilemma, a choice between um, having to incriminate themselves, having to lie and perjure themselves, or to end up in contempt by refusing to respond. Um, and there are other... There are other scholars who've spent a lot of time who've tried to develop a rationale and understanding for what's the purpose, like what interest does it actually serve? Um, and when does that interest not apply such that we don't have to worry about the privilege of self-incrimination? Because right. ultimately, these are just legal rules in, in service of some particular purpose. And we could change them if, the, if we recognize the That's purpose right. was no longer useful. If, it, if, we no longer, if, it doesn't, if the purpose is no longer useful or if some new practice doesn't violate the purpose, then we don't have to worry about it as much. And so one of the rationales that I find that's particularly useful is um, an excuse-based rationale, which is because we put you in this position of choice, right, which is incriminate myself or end up in contempt or lie about it, um, that uh, we give you an excuse under certain circumstances to say, um, I I can't answer. And if I use that against you, if I said, if you can't answer, then I'm going to use that as evidence of your guilt, then I put you right back into this difficult position of choice. And so we say there are certain excusable reasons why we won't make you answer under certain circumstances. And so then we have to ask the question of, okay, well, given the nature of the evidence that we want to try to acquire from you and the recognition that, you know, that kind of position we would put a person in is, um, is, more than we would expect any of us to withstand, right? We would, like the idea that we would hold a person to a higher standard than we could hold ourselves isn't something we generally want to do. Then, you know, once you sort of establish what's the rationale, why do we do it? Then I get to the question of, okay, well, so what does that mean for neuroscience? Does that change anything? Um, And oftentimes what I come to is a, a slightly different answer than the previous answer that we had before, right? Which is, Um, the way that we've traditionally dealt with evidence for self-incrimination purposes is we'd say, well, if I force you to speak against yourself, I put you exactly in that excusable kind of condition that I should not hold you accountable for. And so if I'm forcing you to speak under those circumstances, I'm going to give you a privilege against self-incrimination. But I could take away the concern for you, right? If the concern is I've either got to lie or I'm going to incriminate myself, I could say I'm going to give you immunity. So um, whatever you say, I'm not going to actually use against you, but I need the evidence that you have in order to incriminate this other person instead. Now you don't have an excuse anymore. And so your failure is a failure that I'm not going to give you a privilege for. You're not in this dilemma anymore. That's right. And so once you're not in the dilemma, then there's no reason to actually excuse your choice. Um, And so we recognize that there are exceptions. That's an exception, which is if I immunize what you say, then I can actually force you to speak. So we had speech as one category, and then we had physical evidence from your body, like your DNA, or a blood sample, or a handwriting exemplar, or a voice exemplar, or a footprint, or something like that. 
And in those cases, we'd say, you're not in any kind of trilemma at all because exactly. you can't fake it. You yeah. can't perjure yourself. And right. so the idea that you'd be facing some sort of terrible choice, you're not. Right. I'm just forcing you to submit. And that you're might, just acquiring evidence. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and that might compel you to do something, but it's not compelling you to do anything that puts you into a very difficult position of choice. Right. So traditionally, we've said, if I take it from your body, that's okay. You don't have a privilege against self-incrimination because of the reasons for the privilege itself. If, on the other hand, I'm forcing you to speak, you might. So where does brain evidence fall, right? Um, if I look at your brain, there are many different things I could get from it. Like if I want to know, you know, I, I have a videotape of a person who ha was hit over the head during the crime, and that person should have a brain abnormality in that region of their brain or some sort of brain bleeding in that region of their brain. So I want to force you to submit to a brain scan to figure out if you have brain bleeding in that region of your brain because that's going to connect you physically to the crime. Yeah. That's not, I don't see a dilemma there. Right. There's no apparent dilemma there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just I'm using your body as physical evidence. Yeah. What about I show you a series of pictures um, and the pictures, your brain-based response. Right. You're looking at my brain-based response to those pictures. So you're, you're reading my thoughts at some crude level. At a very crude level. Very I'm crude looking level. at recognition. Yeah. Right. And, um, and you say, I've never heard of any of these people that you're talking about. And I show you a series of pictures and your brain lights up in a particular way that suggests that you actually recognize the, the people who are depicted in the photographs. Is that putting you in any sort of cruel trilemma or a difficult position of choice? Well, you're, I would argue that, well, I, anyway, I don't know, this is probably a rhetorical question, so you probably don't want to hear that. No, I, I'm, I'm curious as to what you think. I mean, do, do you think that that puts you in a cruel I think it's a lot choice? closer. I'd have to think about it a lot more yeah. uh, before I'd respond immediately, because it's certainly getting to be a lot closer to me actually talking and communicating my thoughts and, and right. implicating myself. Right. Um, so it starts to feel different yeah. than the physical evidence. Sure. And what about if I ask you a series of questions and I say, you don't need to speak at all. I just want to know what your answer is. Well, that's equivalent to me speaking, right? Because that's just transparently. So it's equivalent in the sense of the, the reason we're protecting it, that's right? Yeah. And so what the literal language of these court opinions said before is there's a difference between real physical evidence and spoken evidence. But... You know, physical evidence is changing now. I mean, right, so and it's all physical, right? Yeah. I mean, every one of these is physical, so that's not the meaningful divide. The meaningful divide seems to be which things actually implicate the reasons for the privilege and which ones don't. Right, this, and is, that, this is your idea of using it as a lens, right? Yes, to actually. exactly. And so, so I'd say, sure, it's perfectly fine for you to actually compel a person to submit to a brain scan to see if they've got bleeding in that region of their brain. That might be, you know, the, there's no privilege against self-incrimination that that should be protecting against. There's no reason that you get to say, no, you can't use my body for evidence. That middle category, that's a category that's tougher because you might not actually be in any sort of trilemma because you might have zero control over what your brain responds in kind of an automatic fashion. There's many things that happen automatically in our body that we have no control over. So it might be unpleasant to me, but if there's no exercise of control or conscious awareness that I can you know, use to try to control those evoked responses, you might say that's also unprotected under the privilege against self-incrimination, given the reasons why we actually protect this evidence. Whereas if I think something in response to your questions, thought and speech are really very much the same. And we couldn't get at thought before, which is why we didn't protect thought before. But once we can get at thought, shouldn't we protect it just the same as we would protect the spoken words as well as the thinking words? Right. And so I try to say, you know, these clean divides we've had before were useful because we didn't have the complication that neuroscience might introduce. 
But now let's use neuroscience to understand why did we do things the way we did things to begin with? And how are we going to do things now that things are different? Right, because these divides are technologically dependent. Sometimes, te yeah. Right, and in this particular case, mm -hmm. they are. Right. Uh, and, and as technology improves, uh, one has to think about how one rewrites the laws in our understanding in such a way that it preserves the original intention, or at least whatever intention we now want to ascribe to it. Yes. Um, and, and then we have to ask the question of, does the original intention still apply, right? right? So in some areas, like responsibility, which we'll talk about, right, the reasons why we held people accountable may not be the same today as they were before once technology improves and we have a better understanding. But it seems like the privilege against self-incrimination withstands new technology. The way in which we've drawn the divide doesn't, but the reasons themselves still hold up. And so if our norms continue to be relevant, then the question is simply, how do we apply those norms to new technology? Right. So let's talk about responsibility and free will and the whole, uh, the whole deal. Um, you've written a fair amount about uh, how neuroscience can give us, uh, uh, neurological approaches can give us a, a, not only perhaps a different understanding of freedom, but from a legal perspective as well. There's, of course, the age-old debate of free will, mm -hmm. and um, as a philosopher, we could certainly go there, but let's, let's focus it uh, in a legal context, mm -hmm. and, and let's talk about what that implies or doesn't imply about the responsibility of, uh, of a defendant and, and how responsible he or she may have been for his or her actions. Mm -hmm. So there's no easy answer to the question of how responsible is a criminal defendant for their actions. And so we have to start by saying, what are our assumptions in criminal law? And to hold a person responsible, we say they have to have acted voluntarily and they have to have done so with a particular kind of mental state. And those mental states are things like purposely or knowingly or with disregard for the kind of risk that they might create in society. And does an abnormality in the brain impact how we think about those things, voluntarily, purposely, knowingly, etc. Um, and I think the answer is it has to in some way. Uh, the concept of what it means to do something voluntarily in criminal law is different than what the concept means in neuroscience. In neuroscience, voluntary actions are um, a, a narrower category in many ways than voluntary actions in criminal law. In criminal law, we say everything is voluntary. Uh, and there's a few things that we think are involuntary, like a reflex or a convulsion. Um, and so it's literally when conscious awareness is not part of the decision making and it's just an automatic reflex or response that we treat as an involuntary action. Whereas in neuroscience, they say, well, that's not quite right because there are a lot of things that are involuntary that are not in your reflex or convulsion kind of category. There are things, you know, that happen too quickly for your conscious awareness to actually be part of. So if you are swinging your bat at a ball in a baseball game, the rate at which the ball is approaching the plate and how quickly you have to decide to swing the bat to make contact with the ball is such that you can't consciously process all of that information in time for you to swing the bat. Is that involuntary then when you swing the bat? Yes, well, criminal law would say, of course you voluntarily swung the bat, but they've, assumed, they've assumed you did so because you consciously decided to do so. And so this kind of disconnect between the brain thinks too quickly to go through conscious awareness right. versus, 
but it's a voluntary act. I mean, nobody would say somebody else swung the bat. You swung the bat. You right. meant to swing the bat. Because legally, they don't. Legally, there's no distinction between you and the brain, as you were saying. Whereas that's from right. a neuroscientific perspective, there are all sorts of subtle distinctions of, of what, where the signals are coming from and at what time and so forth. That's right. And so, what we're having to do in criminal law right now is be much more deliberate and specific about what we mean about those concepts, because every day criminal defendants are coming into the courtroom and saying, um, it wasn't voluntary because it happened too quickly. Um, I couldn't have consciously premeditated or thought about it because it happened far too quickly. And here's the evidence about how the brain actually works under these circumstances. Um, it can't go through conscious awareness. And then the law has to say, okay, but we don't care about conscious awareness. We care about whether or not it's... Whether the, you did it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, are you the one who swung the bat or did somebody swing the bat for you? Right. And, um, and is it the kind of act that if you had stopped and thought about it, you could have done, you know, consciously? So we walk habitually. We know how to walk at this point, right? When we're little children um, and we're trying to learn how to walk, we're struggling to try to figure out those connections about, like, how do you actually stand up on those two legs and how do you develop the physical capabilities to do so? But... If you do something habitually, you're not thinking about it. I drive all the time and end up in the wrong place because out of habit, you know, I sort of check out. Am I doing it voluntarily? Yes, I'm doing it voluntarily, even if I'm checked out in some ways and end up as habit making the wrong turn. So, you know, the question of is a criminal defendant responsible for their actions, when you boil it down to are they the person who did it and did they mean to do it, in many ways neuroscience doesn't answer that question for us because the neuroscientific you know, um, understanding of what happened in the firing of the neurons of the brain leading to you taking that action is non-responsive to, was it you? Sure. And did you mean it? Um, and so, you know, in many ways, I think neuroscience doesn't change anything. It's like in, in some ways, they're using different language. It's almost like they're talking past one another. That's something. right. In many ways, they're using different language and talking past one another. But because they're talking past one another, and because there's this neuro fascination that's you know, existing in culture right now, jurors and judges are struggling with it. So if you permit a defendant to bring into the courtroom this evidence of it all happened too quickly and I couldn't possibly have thought about it, it can throw a curveball in how a person thinks about responsibility. So is, is it quite... Like, is it quite right for me to say this person did it and that they're morally culpable for having done it even though they didn't think about it and they couldn't possibly have think, thought about it and they couldn't possibly have premeditated it in the way that criminal law used to think about it? Mm -hmm. um, and the result often is, yeah, they did it uh, and they're guilty of doing it, but we're having to come up with a different language about how to describe that and be comfortable and okay with holding the person morally accountable for what they did. Right. There's a different levels of guilt. I mean, there's guilt to the extent that you were the guy who did it, as you say, but then there's guilt in terms of intent or yeah. volition and so forth. There's guilt in the sense of you are a planned, calculated, premeditated murder. murderer. Well, you know, a lot of people aren't. A lot of people do really horrific, heinous acts without having the kind of long-term planning that we thought was necessary for us to say that that's the wicked person who committed the bad crime. And yet, they still killed someone. And so their brain was involved before we knew anything about neuroscience, still involved after they you know, did. What do we do with that information? And so I think the questions about responsibility haven't changed that much. We still think that person's responsible. The real questions, from my mind, come into account later, which is, now what do we do with them? 
right? So we can identify them as the appropriate agent of responsibility for having done some bad thing. Um, does that mean we put them in jail? Does that mean that we get them some drugs? Does that mean that we give them brain surgery? Right. Does it mean all of the above? Uh, that's the more challenging question to me, which is maybe what it should be leading us to do is rethinking and reimagining what the response to responsible actions are. And, and, and this, is, this brings up my next question in terms of the sociological implications. So it's not just whether or not we put them in jail, but it's what sort of jail and what we actually, who, what we're thinking about in terms of jail. What's the goal of jail? This has right. al always been something that just confused me because it seems like it's a mixture of a, of a variety of fairly independent factors. Right. There is, there is a, an obvious desire to protect society from heinous criminals and further harm and all the rest of that. But there's also, uh, in many cases, a very strong desire for retribution, mm -hmm. um, which implies this notion of setting a precedent, and, or at least might imply this notion of setting a precedent and, and, right. and, and thereby, at some level, protecting society from further harm. Um, and there are other moral aspects to it as well, and it seems like it's a bit of a mishmash when you when you think, okay, we all know that bad guys should somehow be be punished or at least put away. Um, the question is, to what end? I mean, if if we want to ensure that when bad guys come back out, they become good guys, mm -hmm. that would imply a different thinking, not only of what we should be doing in the prison system, but of what's going on in terms of their motivations, how we can best understand how they they won't repeat the crime that they had before. If we naively assume that everybody is these, uh, everybody is, a, is an autonomous moral agent that has complete control over his or her uh, landscape, right. then there's no need to really, I guess, do anything other than um, uh, hope that they won't do that again. But we all know that that's not entirely true, not only from neuroscience. We all know, as you mentioned before, there are all these uh, studies that show that there are sociological effects that are real and substantial, that, that, that statistically have an effect on people. That doesn't absolve anyone of guilt or anything, but it has an effect. And so if we're going to look at this, uh, it seems to me we should be looking at the implications of these sorts of questions in terms of what our punishment system actually is all about. Mm -hmm. I agree. <laughs> you can do that. Um, so, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of different forces at play in what we do to respond to criminals. Um, so when somebody does something wrong, uh, we could say, okay, the, the response is that we should have a retributivist attitude toward them. We shouldn't care what the constitution of the person is. We should care about the harm that they committed against society. And that the true measure of retribution is um, that society is deserving of a response and that the defendant is owed a response by society in proportion to the wrong that they committed against society. And that it shouldn't matter what is happening in their brain or anywhere else, all that matters is the harm that's committed. That's kind of a pure retributivist perspective. Um, a broader retributive perspective would say it's not just about the individual, it's about their moral culpability in having committed that act. And part of what goes into calculating that moral culpability is some of the features which might have limited their ability to control their choices otherwise. And so it's not just about the offense, it's about the offender and the offense, um, or the criminal and the crime. And if it's about the criminal and the crime, then, you know, it, and from a retributive perspective, then you'd say you should punish the person less because compared to the person who has full control of their faculties, whatever that might mean, if that really exists, um, then this person isn't as bad, and so we should treat them less harshly. Maybe that means fewer years in prison, or maybe it means 
better accommodations when they're in prison, or maybe it means that they also get treatment or something else like that. But of course, that's not the only rationale of punishment. If a different rationale of punishment was used, like we're trying to safeguard society, um, then if a person proves that they don't have control of their faculties and that they're more likely than the next person to be homicidal or violent or impulsive or aggressive, and they prove that in a convincing way to a jury, the response should be, you should spend a lot more time in prison. Absolutely, you should spend the rest until, until you don't have those tendencies anymore. That's right, that's right. Until and unless you ever get to the point where we don't think you have those tendencies anymore, then you should stay away from the rest of society. And then the question becomes, who bears the responsibility for getting that person to the point where they could actually participate more fall or inflict no further harm, right? So society... Oh, sorry, I was looking at it the other way. Okay. Right, so, I mean, so, so from the one perspective, you'd say, well, clearly when, when a wrong has been done against society, social control and governments can step in and say that person should be segregated from society. But does society also owe any duty to that person to provide them rehabilitation or treatment or anything else like that? Or do they have to figure out a way to do that for them ever to get back into the criminal, in, into modern society and into the rest of society? Well, that's owing, but it's also, is it in the best interest of society to actually be doing yeah. I mean, you spend a lot of money anyway. On, on, you do. You might as well do it in such a way that you can hopefully rehabilitate people. Well, maybe, right? It depends on if it costs a lot more and if it's effective. And so figuring out, you know, in the 60s, there was a big push toward rehabilitation instead of retribution as a model of punishment. And so there were a lot of different programs that were implemented in prison systems that involved things like job training programs and reintegration programs to try to bring people back into the fold of society. Um, with the idea being it was a more humane approach to responding to criminals and maybe better in the interest of society to help people become more productive, integrated members of society. A lot of those programs failed in right. that people ended up being reoffenders, and it didn't necessarily lead to better outcomes for society, and they were expensive. Sure, but that doesn't mean that the goals are bad. It just means that it might mean, I mean, maybe you don't agree with the goals, but one can certainly argue coherently that those are the right goals. They just weren't uh, perceived with the, with the right means. So, so I, right or wrong goals, I, I think one could say those are good goals, which are um, goals that... Uh, you know, if we could decrease the cost to society overall of crime um, by decreasing the cost of imprisonment and increasing the likelihood of productive citizens being able to reintegrate society, that that's a good thing. But who has the appetite for that in in economic climate where there's um, restricted funds available for many things? And so then the question is, can you develop the political will and political force to take money and put it into these other programs? And so you'd have to show it's cheaper than prison, mm -hmm. um, and that it's worth the money to invest in rehabilitation despite the fact that we can't invest in better education right now for people who haven't committed crimes or um, better health care for people who can't afford health care. Right? There's a lot of resources that you might think are better to spend societal resource dollars on first. Sure, there's prophylactic stuff, but... but, but that doesn't well, but I mean, it's not even well. prophylactic for crime. The point is, we have limited resources. So who are you going to spend the pot of money on? Are you going to spend the pot of money on people who've never committed a crime? Or are you going to spend the pot of money on people who've committed a crime? You know, if, if it's not a trade-off, if you're saying, I'm still going to spend the same absolute dollars, whether mm -hmm. it's on incarceration or on treatment, mm -hmm. um, and with incarceration, there's no hope of this person ever productively contributing to society. Whereas if it's for rehabilitation, there is a hope of them contributing to society and no worse effect that incarceration would have, 
then it would be an easy choice, but it doesn't look like that. It's new resources to develop new programs to figure out which ones work that might not work, that might cost more, and that there's very little political will and appetite to serve. I'm not saying that's right, right? Um, you know, in the ideal world, we could come up with much better options than incarceration, particularly since if you look at prison populations, there's a really high degree of mental illness that exists within prison populations. And if we could figure out how to address that mental illness to both prevent crime in the general population and to be able to reintegrate people, that would be promise, incredibly promising. There are places that have things like drug courts and mental health courts that are alternatives to the traditional court systems. And those pilot programs have proven in some instances to be very effective. And so, you know, I, I, think, I think maybe we will eventually get to the point where we recognize prison overcrowding is not the solution to what might be, in many instances, a mental health problem or a treatable problem. But there are problems to medicalizing crime, and there are social control implications to a, approaching deviance as a medical issue itself that we have to be aware of and that we have some bad history of in this country and in other countries as well. And, and presumably some of this has to do with <clears throat> the rate of technological change. So we haven't mm -hmm. spoken specifically about what neuroscience might contribute towards this development and related developments. But you have specifically talked about practical issues, costs and logistics and so forth. And if we imagine that our level of understanding and our technology increases to the extent that the cost comes way down, mm -hmm. um, then this presumably plays a role. And it also plays a role, presumably, in other uh, moral and ethical and, and legal areas, such as privacy and, and all the rest of this. So I'm imagining something very concrete, just for the sake of discussion, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, I'm a convicted felon, and I'm appearing before a parole board, and they're asking me questions about whether or not I might uh, be a recidivist and offend again and so forth, which I guess they ask, I don't know, I've, unfortunately I've never been in that position, but I guess they ask questions like, are you going to yeah. behave from now on? Um, and we could imagine having the technology where, again, this is very futuristic, but, but I, I think it's, it's probably not inconceivable, where um, they could use some non-invasive techniques down the road where they could uh, be able to have an advanced polygraph. They could tell whether I was lying or whether I wasn't lying. Um, and, well, uh, from a societal perspective, you'd like that because you'd like to know if somebody is going to, maybe you'd like that. Anyway, it's, 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 uh, it's just saying that just lying doesn't necessarily imply they're actually going to commit the crime. But um, all I'm saying is that it seems like um, neuroscience and neural potential neuroscientific technologies opens this whole Pandora's box related to um, these issues of uh, responsibility and, and, and freedom and intentionality and privacy and so forth. Yeah, so we've already started to use neuroscience in some of the ways that you're imagining. So we've already started to use neuroscience, for example, for risk assessments. So at the other end of certain types of crimes, like sexually violent crimes that a person might commit, we really want to know before we let them back out into society if they're going to reoffend. Um, or pedophilia, which seems to have a really high risk of reoccurrence, 
it would be fantastic if we could know if when you say, no, 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 my impulses have been curbed and I will never do that again, if you're telling the truth or if you're lying, or if you're somebody who has a really high probability of reoffending or a really low probability of reoffending. And we've used pretty crude risk assessment tools historically to try to figure out the answers to those questions. And whether or not you're granted parole to get back out onto the streets, or whether or not after you've served a criminal punishment, we can indefinitely civilly commit you into a mental institution, this risk assessment process is something that we've used for quite a while to figure that out. And now we're starting to use neuroscience to figure out if it can be useful in that risk assessment process. A lot of times the double edge of a defendant having introduced neuroscience at trial to show, for example, yes, I committed this act of pedophilia, but here's the brain-based reason that makes it out of my control. The prosecution can turn around and use that evidence after they've served their prison term in a civil commitment proceeding sure. to say there's a neurobiological explanation for why the person did this, which Keep means they're going to... Yeah. Exactly. And then they successfully are able to civilly commit them indefinitely. So these tools can be a double edge, but they also can be quite useful for society, right? Exactly. Because for a societal perspective, if... It means that our risk assessment before was a really crude instrument, and we have a much better instrument now to help us figure it out. That would be great. It's early days. Um, having accurate risk assessment from neuroscience is very difficult because your neurobiology, your genetics are not determinative. They don't answer for us what you're going to do. They simply tell us a little bit more about what you might do. But the better we get at predictions, the more likely we might be able to safeguard people against future crimes and the more likely we are to probably use that information in the criminal justice system. Now, could we use it in other ways too? We could use it for treatment too, right? I mean, maybe these risk assessment tools can tell us not just who's likely to reoffend, but who's most likely to be responsive to treatments. Genetics and personalized medicine right now, um, you know, one of the hopes and promises is to be able to know your, you know, if you have a heart condition, this is the type of drug that's going to be most effective for you because you're going to be most responsive to it. And likewise, if we can get to the point where we can say, this is the type of neurological abnormality or atypicality that you have, you're likely to respond to this type of drug, which can actually improve the behavioral responses to that atypicality. That alone might be able, like you're at your parole hearing and you say, look, I have a really hard time controlling my impulses, but what I can tell you is I really want to. And there's this drug that I've been taking while I've been in prison, which has significantly curbed my impulses. I intend to continue taking that, and I'm happy to submit to drug monitoring tests to show that I'm continuing to take it. Wouldn't that be compelling to hear? Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, right? And so, so I think that it holds a promise for us when we get to the points of treatments and interventions, or if you can show it's a brain abnormality that's operable, like right. if I have the surgery, it'll change my behavior. And in fact, I did have the surgery, it did change my behavior, and here's how I'm compliant. Right. Um, so I think the real hope of this comes when there's an answer to these problems, not just there's a problem with my way of thinking or my way of behaving. Right. And these things, of course, are technologically dependent as well. I mean, the, <clears throat> the, the ability to be operable is is presumably at some level time-dependent, right? Mm -hmm. The ability to be treated is a time-dependent function. That's right. Um, two, two last questions. Um, I know that you're on the Presidential Committee for Bioethics. Commission. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Presidential Commission for Bioethics. Mm -hmm. um, something I didn't know until I looked into it was um, 
the fact that this is not the first presidential commission for bioethics. That's right. That there was the, the under the they go all the way back to Carter. Right, but yeah. but but uh, but in, in terms of continuity, mm -hmm. uh, there was one under the Clinton administration, and then the, uh, from '96 to 2001, and then there was one from the, the Bush administration from 2001 to 2009, and then the Obama administration. Yeah. So my first question is, why? Why? Why, why even have? Why even have politics involved in this at all? Why not have a presidential commission that that's completely nonpartisan or bipartisan or? Well, they are whatever. bipartisan. Well, I understand that they're bipartisan, but at the same time, why have one administration saying, you know, I'm going to have a like commission? Have a, and, a standing regulatory body or something that, or standing yeah, that commission? Yeah, that would be. I mean, well, so that, some countries that, it do seems, that. It seems political to me when I when I when I hear this, right? And, yeah. And well, so so it's I'm it's political why. in the sense that um, the role of every one of these commissions has been to advise the president. And sure. so it's the president constituting an advisory board to be able to weigh in on issues of bioethics that arise. Um, and if you think about it that way, every new president that comes in constitutes his own, his own cabinet for his advisors to help him in decision making. Mm. And so... Okay, so I... I mean, well, I mean, I so, so, so there's a I lot. I understand it legally in terms of, or at well, least formally in terms of the framework, I, but I mean, there's a difference in picking your secretary of state and picking who you, who's going to advise you on bioethics. Um, really? If you say so, right? You don't think so? Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think the idea is the same, which is you want to be advised on issues of policy, um, and who you would trust as your advisors is going to vary by who you are. And so, First of all, there's the you know kind of regulatory piece of it, which is each of them are committed by each of them are constituted by an executive order, and those executive orders only last as long as a president lasts. And so the technicality of the commission is that the commission goes away when the president goes away because the executive order that constitutes it goes away. Um, but so the new executive order creates a new commission, and so then the question is, why don't you just import the previous commission and have them continue to stand? Um, and it's because those aren't the people who the president believes are most um, trusted in terms of the advice that they're trying to seek. And I think, you know, as a, as a matter of what you would hope is that each president would end up with a bipartisan commission that would reflect not just the views that you want to hear, but the more challenging views. And so, um, my hope is that for each future commission that you would end up with a pretty representative body of a, of a number of different fields, but what one president thinks is useful is different than what another president thinks is useful. And these are, you know, our, our commission will have served six years, I think, by the time we're done. Um, that's a long time in oh, service. So. But of, co of course, you can combine these things. I'm not suggesting that one person be be there for 20 years. Uh, Just a free. So I mean, so the, the Nuffield Bioethics Council is similar to the model you're suggesting. Mm. This is in the UK. Um, they have an independent organization called the Nuffield Bioethics Commission, which is a nonprofit organization that um, weighs on national matters of interest with respect to bioethics. And people change, of course, as they choose to, you know, roll off of it, and a new person is elected to it and, and serves in that role instead. And having a national bioethics advisory board like that, I think, is really quite effective for continuity, um, for preservation of records, for building on past work that's happened. There's a lot of benefits to the Nutfield Bioethics Council kind of approach. And the optics. I mean, from my perspective, um, I'm not suggesting that, that everybody is waving Republican or Democratic flags, depending on who happens to be in power. But it, it looks manifestly political. It looks like a politicization of science, if you're on the outside. And, and, 
and that's something which um, is, 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 I think, dangerous. And, and, not and I think it just depends on the role it's meant to serve, right? So, um, so I, think, I think the Nuffield model is a great model, and it's a model that um, is meant to serve in an advisory capacity to different parts of the UK government, you know, Parliament, uh, the HFEA, the Human Fertilization Embryology Authorities, each of these different bodies, they serve as an independent ethics advisory opinion, which is terrific. Um, and you know, th there's much to be said in support of that. The one downside of that kind of a body is what's their political effect. And so there's two sides to um, the kind of way you're viewing it as politicization, which is if it's an independent body that you haven't selected that provides advice, you might not heed that advice. Whereas if you actually have a trusted set of advisors sure. that you've charged with giving you opinions about particular issues, you might be more likely to actually make choices that are influenced by those types of decisions. And so I think if the hope of the Bioethics Commission is to just simply inform the public that you might not end up with um, the same kind of results that you would with a model like the Nuffield Council, if it's to advise the president and the public and to advance dialogue in a particular area, then this might be a better model to affect outcome and change. What you hope is that it serves in a true independent advisory capacity, that it isn't influenced by the president and that the conclusions that are reached aren't um, controlled by or changed by the politicization of the process. And the way that in this country independent advisory commissions work is that they actually have independence in their decision making and in their deliberations. Sure. Anything I haven't asked? Anything you want to get to? I know I've taken a fair no. amount of your time. No, I think we covered a lot. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Nathan. That was great. Sure. Enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Law, along with separate discussions with Emily Hafner Burton, Elizabeth Loftus, Julian Roberts, and Ellen Sachs. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.